Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Evan Myers. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Ryan Streeter. Ryan is the Director of Domestic Policy Studies right here at the American Enterprise Institute, where he oversees research in education, technology, housing, poverty studies, workforce development, and public opinion. Formerly, he served as the Chief of Staff for Policy for Indiana Governor Mike Pence, as well as Special Assistant for Domestic Policy to President George W. Bush. For our winter 2022 issue, Ryan wrote an essay making the case that the trouble facing America's heartland is a lack of economic dynamism rather than an excess of it. Commentators on the left and the populist right tend to blame economic disruption for the insecurity and stagnation in working class communities. But Ryan writes that, quote, the present effort to double down on nationalist and populist workplace goals will only make the experience of work less satisfying and future unrest more intense. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Ryan, we're glad you're here. You know, in the piece, you you make an argument, broadly speaking, that we need more dynamism. Like Dan just said, we need more dynamism, creativity, innovation to restore the American economy. Now, I want to get into the details of that argument, but but before we do that, I'd like to talk about how you kind of frame the argument in your, in your introduction. Uh, you write that the populist turn of the American right over the past decade has created a policy affinity, if not an ideological one, between nationalist conservatives and mainstream progressives. Both camps are energized by a moral narrative about the injustices of corporate greed and the failures of the elite, which expresses itself through support for industrial policy worker protections, family allowances, trust busting, and redistributing wealth to bolster working class wages and living conditions. So I guess I just want to ask simply, to what extent do you really think the American political landscape has come to be dominated by these two forces on the left and right? And yeah, I guess in other words, you know, why is dynamism even in need of defending today? Yeah, well, dynamism's uh, in need of defending um, just because it's gotten a little bit of a bad rap lately and um, yet is really important and essential to our understanding of our, our own political economy and society in the in the country. So I, I wrote the essay to not just defend dynamism for its own sake, but to help explain and understand this concept as kind of a, not just an economic one, but a but a cultural one. Over the last 10 years, there has been this policy affinity that you just referred to, which I, I mentioned in this essay, where you see, and this is putting it crudely, but you see people on the right and the left in the policy community and the academy carving up the world into employers and workers. Um, and uh, in their more extreme forms, the, the, the CEOs are the 1% and the hourly wage workers. And so there's this, this cultural divide, which predates the Trump era, but the Trump era obviously kind of shined a, a really bright light on it. You might sure. say put, some, put it on steroids. And I don't address this in the in the essay, but I think uh, you know I and and some of my colleagues here at AEI and and friends in and around the policy community would trace some of this back to the the effects of the 2012 election, the makers and takers language of Mitt Romney, which which um, sometimes I think has been a little little overdone. But I'm sympathetic with this argument that that there was on the right in particular kind of a, an overlooking of working class people. My people. I'm from the Midwest. Uh, yeah. Extended family members, people that that I know well, and mm. in in places where where I grew up, mm. and so I've always, you know, personally been been sort of uh, sympathetic to to that argument that 
that when we're only rewarding sort of elite entrepreneurs and corporate CEOs uh, as a matter of policy, or at least putting them as the the sort of main subjects in our in our policy deliberations, we're, we're overlooking something really important. But I think what's happened is there's been a diagnosis of what's gone wrong in the country that hasn't been quite accurate, and it's led to policy recommendations on both the left and the right, which, if followed to their logical conclusions, I think could be deleterious for the workers that we say we're, we're trying to help. And that's that's what I get into in the piece a little bit. I frame it up front kind of in the, the language of Rawls and Nozick, this kind of debate yeah. that we've we've seen between these two esteemed Harvard professors uh, in the early 70s where, you know, when John Rawls wrote The Theory of Justice, really, you know, making as a goal and really creating a, an intellectual kind of architecture for progressives and, and liberals in America about the, the need for the state to really keep the well-being of the least well-off as as its its main goal has created a, 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 a situation in in which security, you know, protecting us from the shocks of unemployment, the effects of what has sometimes been called dynamism, um, where, you know, the, the rich get richer and everyone else kind of stays behind, that the state should be focused on remedying that problem. And the, the Nozick sort of response to that is that uh, you can't do that to the detriment of individual liberty. And so there was this, there's been this big disagreement that's been manifested. I'm not saying that these these are the two people that all of our policymakers sure. are back to, but the way that they frame this debate in the 70s is kind of the way in which the right-left debates about domestic policy have really played out over an entire generation. Mm -hmm. And it's been in the last 10 years that sort of both sides on the right and the left have really started to kind of embrace the Rawlsian view of the American political economy and and taken for granted some things in the diagnosis that I think aren't entirely accurate, which we could we can get into if you want. But it's put us in the situation where dynamism, that is, you know, an entrepreneurial economy where things are created, where where new ideas uh, get capitalized and new businesses get started, creates this an environment where there's lots of churn in the marketplace, businesses starting, businesses ending, creating this environment which gets described as an environment of instability. And what I'm and for, for understandable reasons, but what I'm arguing in this essay is that just when you look at the, the research itself, when you look empirically, when you look historically, in fact, I think the opposite is true. When you have places where there's lots of dynamism, you actually have a better working environment for working class people. Mm -hmm. and, a, and, and there are a number of reasons for that. Yeah, Ryan, and just to follow up on kind of how you're defining dynamism in the piece, um, you mentioned already the Rawls-Nozick debate. I wanted to take that a step further with where you go in your piece, um, that this liberty-security dichotomy, um, dichotomy is not the only way to view political economy. Um, you specifically talk about dynamism versus stasis or becoming versus being. You go all the way back to Aristotle with this, which I think is one of the more interesting parts of your piece, then up through David Hume, Adam Smith, and the Enlightenment of kind of notions of potentiality and fulfillment, the pursuit of happiness and declaration of independence, and then also Lincoln talking about um, independence and and entrepreneurship. Yeah, talk a little bit about more at the, about viewing it as dynamism versus stasis um, rather than liberty versus security. You know, it's a great question and it's an important part of the framing here because I do believe that our public policy debates have played out along this liberty security framework, like I mentioned, for, for a long time and for understandable reasons, and we're all pretty conversant in it. But as you show in, in what you said, Dan, there's more to the story than that. There's there's a whole body of literature. There's a whole bunch of our own self-understanding um, as as Americans primarily, but also people just in across the developed Western world in general. That you know, part of what our 
our economy is for, an important part of what it's for, and what our policymaking should have in mind is this ability for people to become something that they're not right now, but that they dream of being. You know, we can use the language of aspiration. In America, we call it the American dream. Sure. This idea of starting out here, moving to a place that you can envision and that you dream is, is, is a really important part of understanding happiness. So Aristotle does talk about the fulfillment of potential. And interestingly enough, that word is dunamis in the Greek. Mm. Uh, for you Greek students out there, <laughs> I was a Greek minor, you know, that, that actually is the root of dynamism itself, this, this, this notion that, that fulfillment you know and if you've read you know aristotle's ethics you you understand how important this is that when when organisms you know are, are doing what they're built to do and they're doing it well they're 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 happy and sure. in particular with human beings it has to do with the exercise of virtue and the pursuit mm-hmm. of knowledge and all all the rest of it and that that is really really kind of replete throughout writings that we kind of are all familiar with when you you know the, the declaration of independence the notion of happiness is kind of rooted in this tradition it's not just the lockean concept of property it's this this fuller richer notion of happiness as as fulfillment and uh, and i think that the one of the really important contributions of the British Enlightenment in general, and I would say more specifically the Scottish Enlightenment, was the the way in which that classical notion of becoming, of reaching your potential and its connection to virtue and happiness takes on a bit of a commercial character in that era where the the Scottish writers in particular, Adam Smith, David Hume, Francis Hutchinson, and some some of the others that that you may have studied in school noticed that you know when people were engaged in productive activity in the economy making making you know new metal products making new leather goods and then they were they were competing with stuff that was coming all the way across halfway from you know halfway around the world from China and they were noticing that as as people in Britain were getting accustomed to to new products that that they had to compete with that and so they they put their energies into producing new things Instead of running around stealing each other's cattle and pigs like they had been doing for hundreds of, of years and, and the, the sort of martial kind of warlike habits kind of gave way to commercial habits. And they saw this as a good thing. They, they saw this not just a, a departure from kind of the old customs of the, the, the clans of, of, of Scotland, but actually this commercial nature of the society was actually allowing people to develop skills, to accumulate some, some wealth, to, to provide for their families and to actually in very practical ways become something that they didn't start out as and that they mm-hmm. saw that there was a really important connection to, to, to happiness there. And when you go back and you read them in that light, if you read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, this is not just a, an economic textbook. This is a, a description of, of how people in society develop moral habits, how they pursue happiness. And, and so we are the heirs of that, that tradition. And so when we're thinking about policymaking today and we're thinking about what the goals of, of policymaking should be, we shouldn't just be looking at how much liberty do we have or how much security do we have. We should also be looking how at how possible is it for people to actually pursue things that they want to become and and do. And that's not been as much a part of our policymaking conversations now as I think it has been in in the past. But we've all kind of grown up with that ideal. And we do a lot of survey work here at AEI. And, and I mentioned some of this in the essay as well. Sure. When, when you actually ask Americans of all stripes – Racially, ethnically, uh, gender, demographic—you know, age—all all the demographics. When you when you ask people questions about this, um, it's still very much a part of our DNA. Yeah. Like the the American dream is still a thing for people. Um, the idea that anyone can start and build a business is something that working class people actually believe more than people with college degrees these days. Like they, this view that that's an ideal is something deeply rooted in in who we are, and I think it's there for some really important reasons, and we shouldn't ignore those. Yeah, I think we're definitely going to circle back around and dig into that a little bit deeper. But, you know, for now, I kind of wanted to combine two of the questions we previously asked. The first was kind of about to what extent 
kind of national conservatives or populists have kind of really come into the conversation. And and this the one Dan just asked was kind of about this richer definition of what you know dynamism really is. And I guess it just strikes me that there there are lots of people on on this kind of new nationalist right that aren't opposed to dynamism per se. Um, maybe some are, but I would I would imagine that a lot would be thrilled, for example, if more jobs and innovation kind of flowed back into the American heartland and stuff. But they do seem to have a different understanding of the relationship between dynamism and security than you do. You know, you write in your essay, too much emphasis on security, stability, and risk aversion, whether in one's personal life or in public policy, can lead to decadence, unhappiness, and stagnation. And believe me, like, I know that too much risk aversion can really affect your happiness because I've lived in a pandemic during college. <laughs> um, so that wasn't great. But, you know, I, I do also kind of just want to ask, isn't security, in a sense, also a precursor for dynamism? Don't you have to have a kind of baseline level of, like, protection and, and, and security and stability in order to kind of pursue something like entrepreneurial innovation or something like that. So, you know, in your mind, what distinguishes your approach to the relationship between security and dynamism from that of, of the national conservatives that you sort of brought up earlier in the essay? And is it really a matter of emphasis? Or are you just saying like, you know, is, is it something where you're emphasizing that too much security can lead to decadence and they're emphasizing that not enough security can lead to a sort of hollowing out or something like that? Or are there deeper kind of fissures between y'all's positions? Yeah, no, Absolutely. Security is important as a precursor for for dynamism, and, and of course, we need to sort of define what security is. This is not a libertarian treatise. You know that that the Schumpeterian creative destruction is the end goal, and we should just let people fend for themselves yeah. when, they, when when there's a huge shock in the economy and they find themselves without jobs. That's not at all what I'm arguing here, and I think it's important to state right up front that a healthy and rich and vibrant community life from the household on up is really important for a dynamic society. So mm. having people embedded in rich social networks is as a matter, as an empirical matter, related to your ability to be successful in a more dynamic economy. That is, when you know, when there's a number of studies now on, on the way social capital is generated. And, and, and when you have lots of people in your lives that you trust, you have people that you can depend on, you're also needed by other people, you generally perform better. You're more productive. Um, you're more likely to take risks. And you know some of that makes sense. If you, if you know you've got a lot of people to support you, you are willing to take that risk because if sure. you fall down, you got people to, to, yeah. to pick you up. So, so the, and, I, and I would say too, like that is actually when you go back and you read to Tocqueville, one of the interesting mm. things about him is, you know, we all know the lines from Tocqueville. Even people who haven't read Tocqueville know that he's all about associational life, being right. rich in America. But he, he actually observes this, you know, when he's talking about the the unique nature of New England towns, you know, it's like he talks about Americans being completely driven by material gain. You know, mm -hmm. he's like, they'll barely get the roof built on their house, he says, and they sell it. Like they, <laughs> they're constantly, you know, trading and bartering and they're doing, and this is way different than, than my home in France, he basically says. Mm. But all of that sort of crazy commercial activity, this materialism, this pursuit of you know making a name for yourself, is against the backdrop of these really rich communities, right? right. Yeah. And so understanding what it means to be secure in a community is a, is a really important thing. And and I think a lot of my nationalist friends, and I'm purposefully leaving names out of this, but a lot of them would totally agree with everything that I just said. They, sure. They would. Yeah. They would. Yeah. They would believe that that's the case. Where I think we start to differ is an approach to policy that suggests that you can, through certain types of economic policy, labor policy, you can actually make up for the areas where that's fallen apart. So, right? mm -hmm. so when, the, when communities have become stagnant, when they've been falling apart, when you're seeing this decay of social capital and community life, that 
a combination of industrial policy and wage subsidies and more money for raising kids and these sorts of things that have become, and there's other policies as well that have been sort of latched onto by the nationalist crowd will somehow address those problems. And what I'm trying to say here is that you're starting too late with all of that, that the stagnation that you're observing isn't so much the result of an increase in entrepreneurial activity. It's that the stagnation is what results from maybe even a whole generation ago, a loss of that kind of dynamism at the community level. And, and I'm, I'm really you know, basing a lot of this on some really important economic and social science work. And yeah. I talk about Edmund Phelps in the piece because I think he's probably done more as an economist to kind of address this, not just as an economic concept, but as a cultural one. And McCloskey and McKeer and, 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 and others mm-hmm. who've written about this uh, have some really important things to say about it. And so I think that the idea that people will actually find themselves feeling more secure in their lives as the recipients and the beneficiaries of these policies is, it, to me, that's a really open question. And I, I yeah. tend to think the answer is that they won't, hmm. that, that happiness won't follow from a larger child tax credit to help you raise your kids, a boost uh, in your hourly wage by two bucks an hour mm-hmm. or something, maybe a union to, to join. When you're living in a place that's been suffering from the effects of stagnation for a while, you need something that revitalizes that dynamic kind of environment. And, and you also need something that can address the breakdown of community, which is obviously a much, a much bigger issue. Yeah. So that, that's, that's where I would say I, I depart from some of my, my nationalist friends who really have a lot more confidence than I do in the ability in kind of a top-down way um, to provide security to make up for some of these things that, that, that have already happened. I think it's it's unlikely to work because I don't even think that the problem's been diagnosed exactly the right way. Yeah. But I think where we would agree is that um, dynamism doesn't really work unless you have people kind of deeply rooted in mm-hmm. uh, an environment of, of security. And there's a, and there's a, and that environment of security can also uh, involve a social safety net that makes possible uh, some things that they wouldn't be able to do without that. Yeah. I, and none of that's in, in question. Yeah. It's that you can get to a point where you create kind of a corporate state that is so focused on security that the incentives to participate in dynamic activity are just too, too difficult to come mm-hmm. by. I've lived in Germany for a couple of years. And I love Germany. And, and I have good friends in Germany, and I, I love to go back there. Hmm. But Germany is an interesting case in point where you know yeah. the, the, that social insurance model of getting a job out of university or out of trade school, if you went, and being there for 35 years and you know, really not moving and, and then you know, coming out the back end with your pension and all, all those yeah. things is kind of the, the goal. And what's interesting is that job satisfaction is not very high there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been a long time since Germany was a dynamic economy. They're, they're fantastic engineers, but they don't really have this dynamic sort of core. And that means that when it comes time to react to certain things that kind of require dynamism, they're not necessarily set up to do that. I'm not picking on on Germany here. I'm just (laughs) using that as an example. And also because Phelps actually focuses on that. He focuses on Germany and France and Britain as places that historically had high levels of dynamism. And once they they sort of tipped the scales to the social insurance model too far, and again, these these are issues not of either or, these are issues of degree, that they got to a point where the incentives to participate in kind of grassroots tinkering, you know, to innovate, to leave that company job so that you can start your own thing, it's just not worth it. And so you stay and you don't move. And and the and the question we have to ask ourselves is what kind of policy environment do you create where that starts to happen here too? And so that's that's one of my concerns with the kind of nationalist project is is a set of policy prescriptions that push us in that direction uh, where we have these cautionary tales in Europe that we, we should take seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ryan, and just to keep kind of elaborating on how you view dynamism and its, um, its good potential effects, you kind of lay out three core features of it in the essay. Uh, the first one being that fulfilling one's potential is essential to happiness. You've already kind of talked about that, especially with your vocation. Second one being grassroots entrepreneurship and innovation. 
having that competency, you can go out and start a business. And also the idea that job satisfaction increases in dynamic areas um, where there is some destruction or disruption happening. And I think those are those are all you know good and reasonable points. Um, how do you explain this concept of dyism? Like you said, you're from the Midwest, like someone from the Midwest. And obviously, we've talked about, too, the complicated nature of the social institutions versus economic ones. But how do you say to someone in the Midwest um, who's in one of these communities that maybe hasn't done as well in the last couple of decades, dynamism is a good thing for you and your community. Here's how to think about it. I actually think you don't have to go very far to explain it mm. to them. I, I think that people actually have a, kind of a built-in affection for dynamism, sort of described that way, that you know, when there's more grassroots innovation and entrepreneurship, that's a good thing. And when people have options to job hop, that's how people generally experience upward mobility in this country. So if you live in an area where maybe your company's going out of business and you're afraid you're going to lose your job, but if three others have started that need people with your skills, you're able to kind of skip over to that, right? And so that, that and then I think that's probably why when we look at the surveys, and I'm not just talking about ours, I'm talking about world values and, and some of the other things that the economists I cite um, look at, is why you see higher levels of job satisfaction in areas that the anti-dynamists would say you shouldn't see that happen. Mm. People should not be sort of upbeat about their career prospects when there's tons of churn in an economy. And, and I think about like the, there's, a, there's other people you can cite. I think of Enrico Moretti, who's at Berkeley, who's, who's written The New Geography of Jobs about a decade ago. And some mm. of his work, you know, showing that, you know, in a place that's really booming, the related service economy that grows up around it is actually kind of a rich, vibrant place. Like, you know, when, you know, Seattle was booming when Microsoft kind of, you know, took over the city and things were, you know, exploding around there, you know, it was great to be a yoga instructor, right? And there were <laughs> lots of them and, and you could you could carve out your niche, you know, and, and it's a lot harder for that same yoga instructor to move into a place that's stagnant and, and open up a shop and, and, yeah. and be prosperous. So I think the, the, the idea that those three things together, you know, sort of personal fulfillment and mm -hmm. the sense of reaching your potential, grassroots innovation and job satisfaction, they kind of go together in that environment in a way that a lot of people understand. I think the, and I'm sort of, I, I don't want to be perceived as evading your question, so I'm going to come right back to the, to the hard part of that. I think that to, to be completely honest about the implications of the need for dynamism in people's lives and in, yeah. in communities, you, you have to be willing to say to people, if you live in a place that is completely stagnant and has been for a generation and no signs of it shows no signs of rebounding, you might need to move. And, it, you know, you, you might need to think of something else to do for your family that can, can, can address that. That is how lower income people in America actually got ahead going back generations until the last one. Yeah. They're the most mobile, right? When, when economies would collapse someplace or grow stagnant, people would pick up and, and move. And you know, that pioneer spirit kind of. Yeah. And it, the, the, the pioneer spirit's the positive way of talking about it. The dislocation is the negative way of, <laughs> right. of sure, talking sure. about it. Yeah. Yeah. And we probably all know people in our own lives and families who have both happy and sad stories to tell about that. Yeah. And some of us have, have experienced things similar to that at, at various points in our, our lives. But I think it's the job of creative policy entrepreneurs, primarily at the state level, to think about how to revitalize places that are decaying. But at the individual household level, if moving, and I'm not talking about packing up and moving 300 miles, you know, for, you know, mm -hmm. two states over, a lot of times it's moving 60 miles mm -hmm. from, from the declining kind of industrial town that just is, everyone's moving away and you don't want to disappoint the mayor by being one more data point in the brain drain story. But at the same time, if the best jobs and the best opportunity for you to use the skills that you have is 50 miles, is 50 miles away at the, the, the mid-sized city that has an economic base that's growing, you might want to think about relocating even for, for a time. And 
our policy environment should make that easier to do. So I think I think it's I think it's because of the way we have designed our safety net and whole, and there's other. I'm not just blaming the safety net. I actually think there's some some really deep rooted sort of other factors that are, are at work here. Mm. We've made it more complicated for people to kind of pick up and do that to to seize that opportunity that's down down the road. And yeah. so we we should be be addressing that as as well. But I think. Those three ideas are something I think resonate really well with mm-hmm. with working class people. And we have a specific definition of the working class that we use in our survey work mm-hmm. that we developed with Brookings in a working group a, a couple of years ago. And we just pull that sample out of our survey and look at how those people respond to, to questions. And these would be people with more than a high school degree, but less than a four-year college degree, yeah. you know, within a certain range of the income distribution. And, you know, we find that this idea that People should be able to start, build, and make things. Still resonates mm-hmm. very much with with working class people. That's certainly true for me with people that I know and extended family and friends networks who would fall into that that camp as well. Where that this idea uh, really really resonates. Nobody likes to be told that their town is dead, though, and that's and that's just a brute reality that we have to deal with. Because mm. false promises or having a local tax credit program to try to turn the, you know, the 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 theater on Main Street that hasn't shown a movie in forty years into a brew pub to attract talent when you're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I've been a part of policy discussions like this. And yeah. It's, are very unlikely to work. And, and so we need to be honest about that. And yeah. we, can't, we can't sugarcoat this when we're talking to people that are living in hard hit places. Well, that, that is actually a really great lead in to, to my next question. And yeah, I just I had to ask this before we, we wrap things up is there does seem to be, as you kind of hinted at, like this inherent tension between dynamic cultures and formative institutions, which is something that people at AEI and people in our circles really care about a lot. In your, in your essay, for example, you write that dynamic cultures embody the modern ethic, a desire for self-expression through the exercise of imagination and creativity, and the modern morality, the right of individuals to pursue this search unchained from traditionalism. And, you know, I'm from Alabama, and as I get so uncomfortable with the idea of almost anything being unchained from traditionalism, like we love our traditions. And I guess I'm wondering how, the, how people in this sort of culture that puts such an emphasis on something like self-expression and the rights of individuals could ever really be a part of a formative institution or put roots down in a community. So I guess I was just hoping you could elaborate on the tension between upholding institutional life in America, which you, you, know, you mentioned is really important. And then also, like you said, being honest about the kind of cost of dynamism and how those two things don't actually have to be divorced from one another, that dynamism and institutional sort of formation can work together. I mean, a kind of positive vision for what that might be like. Yeah, I love this question because you're you're getting at this debate that we have been having, you know, not just here in Washington, but across the country for the last decade or so about these trade-offs and this this kind of conclusion that I've found and progressives have been here for a long time. We found people on the right who've kind of arrived here more recently. Mm-hmm. This this idea that these two things are just kind of always in tension, that that dynamism and the characteristics of it that you cite there. Yeah. Uh, the ability for personal fulfillment and expression and, and you know what I call in the piece a healthy individualism. There's the there's the self-indulgent yeah. self-expression of Instagram that I think we can all agree is not not good for us as a country. But make it a name for yourself uh, in your field. I think most of us want that for our children. And most of us probably want that for ourselves when we're early in our career. We want to we want to be we want to be good at what we do. We even want to maybe be known for that. Yeah. And we want people to recognize that if I'm good, I hope I'll get acknowledged for that. And that that's the kind of individualism that we actually 
always instill in our kids and talk about, uh, even if it's coded among our friends. Mm. But now we're in this anti-individualism turn where, where we yeah. view that any, anything that seems to be a sign of, of individualism, and maybe we've been individualists from the beginning, as some scholars have written that you know our founding documents have set us up to fail from the beginning. That any anything that pushes us in an individualist direction is is somehow going to be a deleterious. It's going to have those deleterious effects on on community life, and I just question the whole premise. I mean, I I think you know going back to what I said about Tocqueville to Abraham Lincoln to our founders. You know, there there are so many examples of this. This this idea that it is being embedded in these rich social networks, which are rooted in traditions, traditions of faith, local customs. Alabama's different than Arizona. Uh, just a you know, little bit. Yeah. <laughs> just a little bit. And, and these are all good things. Yeah. And you, you really can't develop the habits and the attitudes and the abilities to kind of take advantage of what's available to you to fulfill your potential if you don't come from a, a stable environment. Yeah. Um, I mean, just spend some time in a, in a, in a community that's, that's, that's affected with community, with, with social decay, mm-hmm. um, the kind of communities that Charles Murray wrote about so long ago, sure. coming apart and, right. and others, that, you know, you don't have time to develop your potential when you have to pick up your sister's kids after she gets off the night shift and you somehow have to get over to your mom's house to help her take her meds and you're trying to raise your kids and someone else's and there's no husband around. I mean, that's a hard life and it, and it is really, really difficult for people in that environment to kind of fulfill their potential. So it kind of, to me, it's kind of always going without saying that you need to have that, that rich, that rich community life. What I think is really important is that we just don't fall, you know, we just don't fall into this trap of railing against things that we ourselves in our heart of hearts actually believe in. Yeah. And so individualism has become this boogeyman, but the way I just described it earlier is something that we all kind of do Anyway, we we actually look out for ways to enhance our career. We we find that that job that comes along that a friend recommended to us, and it requires maybe picking up and moving across to another state. Now I've got to leave this community that I'm a part of, and the, and all the you know my my community life there, and go do that. But I think I need to do that. Like that is right. going to be good for 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 my family and for me individually. That's a that's a way of of thinking that's very much rooted in who we are as Americans in particular, because we we do have this history of bouncing around. We have this great competitive federalism. We have a you know fifty states, common language, common currencies, very different than Europe. Like you can't just move from Barcelona to Berlin. In and, and start sure. your life over as easily as you can can move, um, you know, from Nashville to Phoenix. So I think we do that. We often think of that as as a good thing. We see the benefits when our our, our kids do that. We want them to grow in that way. So we should acknowledge that, you know, yeah. and try to understand that these things don't have to be intention. You can actually have a good community life um, and and also um, have pursued things to to kind of make you who you are. And so I, I, I would I would like to have a public discussion where we acknowledge both of those things are mm-hmm. true. And I think, you know, we here at AI try to, to do, a lot of us try to do that. We have research that shows the importance of these traditions and community while at the same time, what it what it means for people to actually kind of move their way up and experience upward mobility. Those things don't don't have to be intention. I mean, I've I'm I'm guilty of maybe over moving. Um, yeah. I've moved so much in my career that my my kids can't really answer the question where they're from. <laughs> one's yeah. a college graduate, one's in college. And, and um and yet I don't think I would do it any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sure. the 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 friendships, the networks, the experiences that we've kind of pulled together as a family and that I see benefiting my kids are those are those are real things. I wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily recommend that much mobility for for other people. But what's interesting is that common threads, common threads, communities of faith, 
institutions that we care about, like yeah. learning institutions, like universities. Like these are these are common. Wherever I am, I'm involved in these sorts of of communities, and there's a certain continuity. You know, right. so even you know, and and a lot of us have social networks that span just one individual place and yeah. go to many places, and so you can actually be at home relatively quickly when 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 you make a a move, at least in some some cases. So mm-hmm. so. Figuring out how those things actually reinforce each other rather than competing against each other, I think, is the more important project than consistently remaking the point that dynamism and community are somehow always at odds. Right. Mm. Yeah. All right. So we got a couple final questions for you. Kind of toward the end of your essay, you have a lot of criticism of what you call a new corporatism. And this is the idea that kind of the only poly solutions here that we should look to to uh, increase economic prosperity for people is what you call a blend of industrial policy, state investments, worker solidarity, regulatory partnerships between the state and industries. But I think you've kind of, as you suggested in your last answer, that there's some limitations to what these types of economic policies can do to either kind of replenish community life or give workers a chance to develop innovative entrepreneurial opportunities. And I know you list some policy proposals at the end of your piece. What are some alternative policies compared to what is being proposed today that you think would actually do a better job of both bolstering communities and creating innovative opportunities for workers? Yeah, and I probably should have said at the, at the outset that you know while I'm not a populist, and I think populism as the as as the answer is not a not a great thing. I've always been sort of strongly attracted to like strong strains of. Populism, like just this, mm-hmm. this this view that that people at the grassroots level have some level of inherent wisdom that they ought to be able to to build on is a, is a real thing, yeah, and and it's an important thing, and that kind of, that that you know sort of you know within the recipe where populism is sort of the ingredient, some of the ingredients, but not like the whole casserole, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. is important, sure. yeah. and so I think that you know one of the the reasons that grassroots innovation, that dynamism understood not just as entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley and people with fancy degrees from the Northeast doing, but but actual kind of experimentation, innovation, starting new things kind of in grassroots communities all across the country is important is it gives us a better kind of populism. It gives us a, a sense of ownership at the community level that's that's real. And you probably know people in your life like this. I do too. When I talk to friends of mine who invest in companies too, and I ask them how they think things are going in the country, they're actually much more optimistic than so many people here in Washington. And they give me long lists of people who have started something and people that didn't go to fancy schools or didn't go to college at all that have really created, have found some new innovation in, in the area of their interest and expertise, usually not when they're in their 20s, usually when they're in their 40s after they've been working for a while mm, and developing yeah. some expertise. And they are still building, making and creating things in parts of the country that, you know, some people here in Washington would refer to as flyover country that are that, that are that are real. Mm. My point is we need more of that kind of a thing, right? right. So, so the kind of rent-seeking and the corporatism and these these partnerships between kind of the the captains of industry in certain sectors of our economy and regulators in Washington is is a bad thing because it really creates a dampening effect on that sort of activity. So while we can have our debates about the the kind of you know nationalist solutions to some of these problems, I think it would help us a lot to look at how to increase worker mobility, like I was talking about earlier. So when people are trying to make decisions about how to improve their lives, they have more more options for that. But I think we also should take seriously through, there's different ways you can do it. You can do it through certain ways of doing regulatory reform. You can do it through a congressional commission that actually kind of goes sector by sector and at least makes recommendations. You know, we can't win this whole thing, you know, tomorrow, but actually starts making recommendations for how we could make, create, just interject more competition into these various sectors to make it easier for people on the ground to actually compete. Yeah. So my, my policy prescriptions, and again, this is really more a piece about understanding dynamism. The policy proposals are, you know, sort of summarily kind of tacked on at the, the end, and, and each of those could be its own essay. 
but the kind of sum total of them is this idea that we should be pursuing a number of things that makes worker mobility, both geographic and upward, more, more likely makes the rewards to kind of pursuing your own thing real again, and actually takes seriously this problem that we're making that hard to do for people because we have um, favorites in our policy. Yeah. And, and, and that, that is a kind of, um, kind of a populist response, but more of an entrepreneurial populist response yeah. that, that I think would resonate with a lot of people who still are, for very understandable reasons, kind of fed up with the self-dealing in a place like Washington, D.C., between people, very high, high paid people yeah. <laughs> on both yeah. sides of the table, kind of rigging the game for their own benefit. Mm. The rigged game thing is a, is a real thing. It's not the rigged game of, of Bernie Sanders, but there are ways in which we have made it really hard for grassroots innovation in this country to happen. And we should be on the side of the innovators, not, not the regulators. Yeah. Mm. You know, that, that actually, you sort of seem hopeful in this last answer. And, and that's good because I, I wanted to ask kind of about the prospects for something like this vision of, I guess, yeah, of a entrepreneurial type of populism to really take root, I guess, and, and to sort of become uh, influential and, and, and even essential to the Republican Party's approach to political economy uh, moving forward into 2024. So, yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, are, how, how hopeful are you that something like this could actually kind of take hold um, and, and be a significant part of, of the way that we think about uh, political economy moving forward? I'm hopeful that more people can start thinking this way if we start talking this way more. Those, those that have the ability to influence how people think about policy options, and that would be people running for office, that would be people that, that cover these issues in the media, people like us and think tanks that, that try to put ideas forward. The reason I'm, I'm more hopeful and optimistic is just because of people out there yeah. in America, um, going around and talking to them. Also, what we find in our survey work, I just find, and I've written about this you know, over the course of the last you know, couple of years, this sort of disjunction between narratives in Washington and what people are actually saying on the ground mm -hmm. in, the, in the country. And I, and, and then, you know, as, as I mentioned, when I talk to some business owners that I know in, in different cities across the country and then people that have also invested in them, they just have a hopefulness about this project, you know, more dynamism being a good thing for the country and actually people wanting more of it, wanting the ability to start, build, and make, make things, um, wanting to know that's possible, if, if not for them, for their children. What I learned from them, those people that are actually out doing, you know, this work every day, uh, investing in companies, building small scale things at the local level, is that they think that there's a, enough of a reservoir of, of adventurism and willingness, mm -hmm. of, you know, in people to do that. Yeah. And so that's where the hopefulness come from, comes from. When it comes to making changes in policy to do this, I'm much more pessimistic in the, the near term <laughs> just because I, I find that, that because of this sort of disconnection between policy priorities in Washington all across the ideological spectrum, building enough kind of political support to make some of the changes that I was even suggesting at the end of the essay, I think yeah. is, is a long haul effort. But, you know, politicians are, are mostly followers. And so, the, you know, when, when people themselves start to, to talk about how much they care about these things, some of them will wake up and actually start to think more about, about policy in that regard. And that's what we're here to help them do. Yeah. Yeah, Ryan, I, mean, I think at the very least, you've given us kind of a new valuable framework for policymakers to think about economics and culture and what are actually the, the ingredients to um, being fulfilled in life. And so we really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about the piece. It was a great piece. And, and thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. If you'd like to read Ryan's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.